So welcome to another interview for Yosis HQ. I'm Matt Venn and with me today I've got Al, who you also might know as Folknology on Twitter. So hi Al, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Matt? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. Um, just a couple of questions I'm asking everybody. Um, how, how should we pronounce your name? What's your full name? Uh, just call me Al is the easiest call way. Call me Al. And your preferred Without pronouns? Without singing the Paul Simon song, and preferred pronouns? Uh, he, him. Okay. So, um, yeah, so we met, I think, uh, maybe five or six years ago, probably through Andrew Back. Um, yeah. Was it? Withering Bites, OSH it, Hug. Can you remember, was it the 2016 when we launched the MyStorm? Was yeah. it that, that Oshkamp? I think so. That was my very first FPGA board. Um, so let's let's get started with that because um, you've been involved with um, the open source FPGA stuff for a long time, and it was um, the Black Ice board that you made that was kind of my first introduction to uh, the open source tools as well. So could you um, talk us a bit about um, how you got started or what like what drove you to get involved with that? Yeah, well, I discovered Yosis in 2015, and I thought wow, this is amazing, you know, an open source tool for FPGA. Because I, I didn't realise anything existed at that point. I can't me remember exactly how I came across it. But once I found it, I thought, oh, my God, I've got to get back into FPGAs again. Because I hadn't touched FPGAs um, since I'd done some CPLD work, you know, five or ten years earlier from that. Uh, it'd been a long time ago. So... Uh, in that sense, I thought, well, this is amazing. We've got this opportunity here because everything was always proprietary beforehand. You went with the vendor tools, you used their chips, and you were kind of locked in in many ways. Um, but when I actually started going through some basic stuff, uh, obviously FPGAs had moved on a long way since I'd last done it. But um, I got uh vendor tool i think uh, the recommendation that claire was making at the time was use the can you remember the lattice eye stick it was that really uh, long, na long narrow one with the like usb 25 euros or something, on it yeah. that you actually put into the computer and um i had great difficulty in getting hold of one of these at the time um so i ended up getting i think it was a hx8 um, that was the biggest one, wasn't it? 8,000 so, logic elements. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot more expensive. I remember that. But it wasn't, for FPGA products, it wasn't, you know, a lot of money. Um, so I got that and then started playing around. It was a bit more difficult because the examples tended to be written for the uh, for the iStick and not for the HX, you know, EVN or whatever it was called. So that got me back into it and it started my appetite for it really but I got very frustrated with the hardware very quickly um, vendors have this terrible habit when they design their products of either completely over designing them so you get these kind of development things with so much on them you know that they cost a fortune or there's so little on them that they're practically useless um, vendors often outsource that I find you know, to a third party um, who doesn't tend to have a lot of passion about, you know, the user in that sense. For them, it's just a turnkey type process. Um, so I quickly got, you know, 
annoyed with this hardware. And I thought, well, you know, you've got all of this open source software, um, you know, this complete new tool chain that enables us to use open source, but yet you've got this kind of proprietary hardware. So I thought, well, we've got to do something about that. You know, we're having done open source hardware, you know, in the microcontroller space. Um, at that point, I'd just done a lot of printer stuff, 3D printer stuff, like printer drivers and things, and um, some Exmor stuff. I figured I'll have a look and see see what's involved, you know, have a look at the packages, see what's available, etc. Um, and at the same time, I thought, um, because we had this regular, it was like a monthly meetup in the UK um, for the open source hardware user group. And we'd have speakers every month talking about one or other open source projects, etc. Or you'd have people that are well known come and speak about, you know, what they've done in the past, etc. So I figured, oh, this would be a really good subject. Let me talk about Yosis and show people Yosis working, you know, with this product. So in 2016, actually, so because I, I, it was probably the latter part of 2015, I discovered Yosis. But in the early part of 2016, I actually presented it at Oshug to, the, to various people. Um, and at that time, Ken was in the audience. And we always used to go to the pub over the road because uh, this was actually in Southampton Street in, in, in London. And we used to go to the what was called the Coal Hole, which was a really noisy pub, but really busy pub. We used to kind of take over a table, a whole bunch of us. And Ken turned to me and said, you know what, why don't we build a board? Uh, and Andrew Back was there, who you you know as well. Yeah, I hope to get him on this uh, series of interviews in Indeed. the future. Indeed. And he, and he said, look, we've got Oshkamp coming up, you know, at the end of the summer. Why don't you do a workshop? Build a board and then, you know, make 100 or whatever it was. I can't remember what the volume was. And then do a workshop using the open source board and the, you know, the Yosis open source tool chain. You know, it'd be a really great story for Oshkamp. Uh, so Ken and I looked at each other and thought, oh, let's, let's just do it. You know, the fact that we only had like two months or whatever to get <laughs> these damn things done, it was just, we, we just figured, let's take the challenge. You know, and you what, actually what, did, what could you possibly um, go wrong? Yeah, but I was... <laughs> So I, I remember one of the di the different things about that board was um, uh, not only did you uh, put like a chunk of memory on, which was really cool for doing video projects. So my first kind of my first major FPGA project was um, like a video project. Um, so the memory was great for a frame buffer, but you also had quite a different way of um, loading in programs. Like you went, most people have been using the FTDI chips to get their USB serial to then flash the EEPROM. And you, you used a microcontroller, didn't you, on that board? Yes, we did. Um, uh, we, we always, you know, we always called it the FTDI tax. You know, yeah. if you wanted to put USB on things at that point, uh, there weren't that actually that many options. I mean, nowadays, there are many options. And there's a lot of, you know, you know, Chinese chips like the CHP XX series and stuff. So it's actually really cheap to do that if you want to go that route now. So our thinking was, was, A, we wanted to avoid the, you know, the USB tax, for want of a better word, but B, um, 
And and this is something that's carried through all of the MyStorm boards is that uh, most embedded type uh, applications often require analog as well. And these FPGA series, the initial ones that were supported, i.e. the I-40s, they didn't have any analog hardware in them apart from the PLL. Um, so you couldn't actually do any mixed signal work. That was that always struck us as an issue. So we figured, um, a there's a, you know the the number of gates on these chips is relatively small, so we we consider them precious. B there's no ADC, and there's no USB. So why not use a microcontroller? Because it could bring all of those things to the party. It brings a USB, brings the ADC. And it provides a bunch of other peripherals that you could use alongside. So, for example, you could use it to do the SD card or you could use it to run, you know, a fat file system if you wanted, rather than having to take up those resources on the FPGA. That was kind of our thinking. Mm -hmm. um, some of it was just, you know, we decided to go that way. So we we're thinking of good reasons for... Uh, supporting that decision quite <laughs> frankly and giving us all this extra headache of having to rewrite everything in order to to get it working because yeah, um, like the um the, the ice prog like the programming tools were all written basically for yeah. bit banging i EPROM, mean weren't they we had an insurance policy for the workshop which yeah. was and we used it by the way which was that we could always program it for the pie so one of the early designs of the my my storm board was we had this um it wasn't a 40 pin then it was a 26 pin two rows of 13 header that you found on the early raspberry pis okay because we always knew that if push comes to shove and we hadn't finished the firmware for the uh for the microcontroller at the time we could actually program it from the raspberry pi which we used yeah. because we we did have issues getting everything done on the STM uh, 32, and it was a, it was an M3, you know, a 103 right, yeah, okay, yeah. STM mm -hmm. 32 103 that we initially started with. On that, um, we did have some firmware running, but in the end, we just knew that in order to get this thing done, we had to drop something. Um, so we figured we'd go with the Raspberry Pi. The other reason that's good is you've actually got something. In those days, it was actually quite difficult to do Yosis because you had to compile everything from source. You know, there wasn't any package, packaged up way of doing it. So the other reason for going with using the Raspberry Pi as a driving device is we could pre-install all of the Yosis software on the Raspberry Pi. So if you're just doing a tutorial, which is what yeah, we were doing, you like days you know, the of fact messing that, around on yeah. everyone's laptops, isn't it? Yeah. The fact that it's it was a bit a slow in, you know, synthesizing the design didn't matter because the designs were, you know, tiny for most of what we did. Well, um, I think that was one of the most amazing things about, uh, or that struck me at the time was uh, being a being able to do synthesis on a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. You know, it's just, oh, it was super cool, yeah, you know, yeah. to be able to do that. Just the idea itself of using the Raspberry Pi. And in fact, we were up until about three o'clock in the morning making Raspberry Pi SD disks <laughs> using disk copy. We had an army of one people. By one. Did you yeah. stay in the hostel when you um, were? 
You know, I don't think I was there that year, actually. Right, Maybe okay. the year afterwards. Yeah. yeah. So we're all there in this hostel place where a lot of us used to stay when we went to the Oshkamp, yeah. you know, in, in the kind of lounge area. You know, lots of different laptops all set up, different people helping us out, copying these SD cards. So we had them for the next day. So, yeah, um, that was one of the reasons we started using the, uh, the Raspberry Pi as a platform for actually doing the development. It just made it easier rather than because you know what it's like at a show or an event when everyone wants to download gigabytes worth of stuff over the Wi-Fi, the whole thing yeah. just collapses, right? So we or wanted to try and avoid unique that. Reasons why it doesn't work. Yeah. Like, often when I've done those workshops in the past, people like they plug the board in and the USB serial drivers don't work. Or yeah, yeah. Well, and we well yeah. we spent the next year dealing with those issues, of course, and solving those problems. So the black ice was the um, the first board, and well, you've actually, done another. Actually, the the board name at that time was MyStorm. That's what we okay. called the board. It was only later on that we thought, oh, we might want to do different boards. So let's use this MyStorm as a kind of community brand for these types of boards, um, and then we came up with a black ice board, and that yeah. was partially because we decided to make them on you know using a black mask. Uh, which at the time wasn't that common when you were making PCBs, but we thought yeah. it was really cool at the time. Yeah. So. It was really cool, yeah. <laughs> and it had those insanely bright LEDs on it as well. Yeah, the blinding ones. Yeah. So then what was the next one after that, the MX? Um, well, we went through several revisions. I mean, you, you mentioned the, uh, the extra memory that we put. So we're using an ICE 40HX series. Um, that actually had, it's a 4K chip, but actually when you're using it with Yosis, the, it unlocks it, the it, whole 8K, doesn't it? It's yeah. actually an 8K piece of silicon in there. It's yeah. only the tools from Lattice that force it into acting like a 4K. So of course you've got, you've actually got 8K's worth, but you only get, I think, what is it like 16K of built-in, um, memory. You don't get a lot. Mm. Um, there's enough to run a small, you know, code example if you're doing a soft cpu or something but not a great deal so early on we thought oh this is going to be a bit of a killer because we knew that people were going to build soft cores and stuff and going to want extra memory so we had this idea of um because we were only building it on a two-layer board initially of putting the memory on the back because you've got this big tqfp 144 there's room to actually put the memory on the back hmm. And we managed to squeeze it in. But we used um, an SRAM chip, which was really unusual. And I can't remember why we did it. But I think it was really because we thought, oh, crikey, we've got to write an SD RAM uh, Verilog driver for everyone. And we thought, oh, crikey, you know, neither Ken or I were that good at Verilog mm. at this point. We thought, let's just put an SRAM in there. It'd be really easy to talk to. Uh, it was actually quite expensive. I don't know if you've ever bought SRAMs, but they're much more expensive than their uh, SDRAM counterparts. And mm. you obviously, you get a much smaller amount of memory. But so the original one, the MyStorm, and the ones that followed that, the Black Ice, the Black Ice 2, because there was two generations after that, um, had this SRAM chip on it. They didn't have this SDRAM chip on it. Um, and that really kicked off quite a big group of users 
in the community for it who wanted to do um, retro stuff. Yeah, so um, there was, a f like, um, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you was, um, because um, one of the side effects of this project was um, this quite active forum, the uh, forum.mystorm.uk yeah. um, forum, and there's uh, that's still going, that's great to see. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us, like, some of the interesting projects that you've seen done. So maybe yeah. kick off with, like... Um, some of this retro yeah i mean what is, i i never expected the retro stuff uh i don't know why i remember the mister project from years back i mean that started a long time ago doing, going, yeah. doing the games thing and i should mm. have you know clicked straight away that people are going to grab this and use it to do I the recall game the first stuff, one being but, a um bbc wasn't it yes but that's what surprised me is so what what happened is they that uh, there were a bunch of people uh, that saw this and thought, wow, there's enough SRAM there, and the SRAM's really easy to talk to and has really good uh, access cycle-wise. Um, because if you, if you go to SDRAM or DDRAM, you have to constantly refresh it, so you have these interruptions. And if you can imagine all the old uh, computer stuff, didn't have DDR RAM or SDRAM. It was SRAM based, so they expect to access the cycles consistently. They don't. The software is not written in a way that you would be able to deal with the fact that you can't access it for a number of cycles. Now there are ways around that. You have to run the memory a lot faster, mm. and then allow enough time to be able to do the refresh in the background kind of thing. But for, when you've got SRAM on there, doing the retro stuff is just like an old retro computer because it's direct memory access. Like all the graphics was written to directly. You use direct instructions. There was no graphics card. You know, the frame buffer was just part of whatever the memory was. Mm -hmm. So um, that made it very easy for them to port all these designs out there um, that people have been working on over years, some of which was VHDL, but a lot of it was Verilog. So there was a group of people that worked on that. And yes, you saw the BBC Micro. Uh, sorry, in fact, you saw the BBC Atom first. Um, a lot of people know about the BBC, um, particularly internationally, because it was very famous because of the TV series, etc. But they did a lower cost machine a bit later on, which was called the Atom. Um, but that had less memory and stuff, so it was easier to port, and it had simpler peripherals. So I think we got the Atom first, then the BBC, then you got the Z80s, and then you got the Jupiter race, and all of these retro machines started appearing, you know, got ported onto this platform. And, of course, then you get a whole load of retro people coming in, not necessarily FPGA people, but they think, oh, wow, we can get one of these boards, and we can play all of our retro games on them. You know, pretend like it's 1980 all over again. Um, so that was, I was, I was shocked at that. You know, yeah. the forum was was filled with all these amazing projects recreating all these old machines. And what they try and do, if you look at the Verilog for these, is it's not like it's not done in the same way that you do it on like a Raspberry Pi. You know, where you're running it under kind of simulation or emulation. They actually try and make these peripherals. They design each Verilog section is designed to act like that chip, 
like a single chip. Right? Yeah, and, and then they join them all up. So, so when you look at the Baron Log, it's not, it's not like a normal, you know, FPGA product in, in mm. that sense. It's actually like you're taking apart the original motherboard and then you have these islands of Verilog modules that you join together in order to get these working. So um, one of the other questions on Twitter was, um, what would you do to get more software engineers aware of and interested in coding for FPGA? And it sounds like retro computing appeals to one set of people, maybe like people who have experienced those computers or have fond memories of those computers. Would you have anything um, that you would suggest for maybe people like newer people to the field? What um, projects have you seen on the forums that, are, that would appeal to, to um, newcomers? I, I think there's a number of um, issues that are very common. Uh, because we ran the original workshop at uh, Oshkamp, and then we did subsequent ones, but we did a whole bunch in London and, you know, in a number of places. Um, we even visited hack spaces and did these small sessions and that, Ken and I. Mm -hmm. um, and the biggest number of people, ignoring the retro part of it for the moment, that came, you know, onto the Yosis platform that we saw, most of them were coming from a software background and were interested in in doing this i mean yes there was all the normal hardware and the electronics type people that had some experience but there were a lot of software people that wanted to do it hmm. um and you get this very large uh, impedance mismatch right with verilog <laughs> because they take a look at verilog and they see something that's kind of algor or c-like in its yeah. syntax but it just doesn't work the way that they expect. Not only that, it's also quite primitive in many senses. Um, and there's good reasons for it being primitive in those senses. It's not necessarily because it's old and they, people haven't done the work. It's just that it's a di it, you're not in Kansas anymore, but you think you're in Kansas. So you see very, very common mistakes that, that people make with this. You know, they think, oh, well, this is a variable and I can change this and do this. But no, it's not a variable. This is a signal and it's real time connected to this. Or this yeah. is a synchronous signal that only changes on the clock and has state. Um, and it's quite difficult to actually get those things across. So um, Verilog, in my opinion, is a, is a double-edged sword. Yes, it's got a familiar syntax. But the trouble is that that makes you think you're in Kansas when you're not. So have it, you tried, it, it, catch, it catches people out. Have you tried any of the uh, like higher level, harder description languages like Chisel or NMyGen? Yeah. So one of the things I've been working on a lot recently um, is working on adding support for NMyGen. Um, and I've tried lots of different, you know, high level languages, less on the Chisel side. But I have looked at that and Spinal HDL, which again is Scala based. Those are very good, by the way. But again, it ex the expectation is that you've got some Scala experience as well, hmm. uh, which which may not as prolific, be as prolific. Um, the good thing with MMIGEN is it uses Python. Um, so what I see now is when people are coming across from programming 
languages from computer science or from computer engineering or software engineering is that impedance mismatch isn't quite as great when they go into Enmigen. Uh, they've got a whole bunch of other mistakes that they can make as well because they see Python, right? And yeah. there, there is some gotchas because when you're writing it in Python, it's easy to think that it's running. And actually, when yeah. you run the Python... It generates error. It generates, you know, the hardware description that then is synthesized out to, to the machine. So it, you're not running it. So that's a bit of a hurdle for people as well, because they're they're in Python and Python runs. <laughs> Why doesn't this run like that? And you, you've got all sorts of problems. So if you use like a Python Boolean rather than a Boolean type signal, a one bit signal, uh, things don't quite work the way that you expect. Um, so there are gotchus, but I think there are less gotchus. They feel more at home in the Python environment. So I think okay. that's, uh, I think that's, and the other good thing is Python itself is very popular. So most people, you can put them in front of Python. If they're a software engineer, even if they don't use Python in their day job, right? They will, they've, seen it. They, they've got some idea. They will probably have had some exposure. And certainly with younger people, most people learn Python now um, as part of their, you know, computer science degrees or courses mm. that they go on you know python's very commonly taught now so it's 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 a very nice easy thing to get into in that sense but it is more computer like and you don't get the criticisms that you get with verilog you know having to use generate and things in verilog is totally alien to people you know, well, how, how can that for loop work like that? You expect the for loop to do something in the HDL. A multiple number of times, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't, of course. It just generates Verilog. Yeah. So it's more, syntactic more sugar for it, but yeah. so that you don't have to write it so many times. Yeah. So um, it's a bit more logical in that sense, the way that that, that works with Nmigen. But there are some issues with Nmigen as well, because... Uh, the documentation's not there yet. You know, I know White Quark and people like that are working on trying to get documentation done. The problem they have is they want the documentation to reflect the new Nmigen, not the old Nmigen. Uh, and until they've actually, you know, decided exactly what that new Nmigen will be rather than won't be, that documentation isn't going to be finished. So there's still some weakness on the documentation front. Uh, you have to do a lot of code diving into the actual Nmigen code itself to, to try and work out what's going on. But more and more people are starting to use it now. You're seeing more video streams and things of people using it. So it is getting easier in that sense. Mm -hmm. You're not like in this complete island, you know, scratching your head, wondering how on earth this thing works. Yeah. Uh, and when it does work, it's very easy to work with, you know, and more importantly, because you can build in the simulation uh, you can build in. It's got the proving support as well. Yeah, it's got um, built-in support for formal verification. Yeah, which will probably make that in itself more popular as well more than, accepted, than within yeah. within yeah. you know Verilog alone. So yeah. I, I think it's got a very bright future. I think something that will probably really improve it is the Glasgow project. Yeah, that's um, just come out on CrowdSupply, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, if you do get a chance to talk to people like Mike Quark, that would be an excellent person to get on to ask about mm. this. But Glasgow, you know, the software for Glasgow is based around MyGym entirely. Yes, yeah, um, like writing little applets for it in Exactly, in and they've got the boilerplate done so that you've got the kind of host sign on the PC, which is async IO, which everybody's really into right now. And then you've got the MyGym framework boilerplate for, you know, your protocol or whatever it is that you're writing that, that works on that. So given the interest that you've had in Glasgow, I foresee a lot of people are going to be putting their head into MyGen. Hmm. And, and I've said, you know, in my streams that I'm going to, moving forward, try and support MyGen as much as I can on our boards moving forward. Great. So I, I think there's a bright future for MyGen. Yosis HQ open source EDA tools and related software development. Okay, so um, this is maybe a good point uh, to talk about um, kind of a, a more um, wide-ranging topic, which is about um, you're clearly using and benefiting a lot from open source tool and tooling and the open source EDA community. Um, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about the impact you think um, the open source um, EDA tools have had on your personal or professional life? Um, so, I mean, it brought me back into FPGAs for a start. I probably wouldn't be working in FPGAs right now if it wasn't for, you know, Claire's Yosis project. Um, if I hadn't come across that, I'd probably still be working with um, Exmos. Um, Actually, let, let's just um, take a, a slight detour here because um, another question that came on Twitter for you was uh, when and which aspects drove you to stop bothering about Exmos multicores, <laughs> which you were uh, enthusiastic about at the time, <laughs> uh, such that you went on working with um, FPGAs instead and if you still miss XC. So I guess you've kind of half answered that is like we, we know what kind of sucked you into FPGAs, which was like having access to the open source tools and Yosis. Yeah, but what, that, what that, kind of there was did something push you from the Exmos? Yeah, there was me thinking it's just going to be this quick cul-de-sac that I was going to peek at. <laughs> you know, six years later, I'm still head over heels in FPGA stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, Exmos, I really enjoyed Exmos. Um, I so it's just I um, for people that don't know, just give us is. like a the executive summary of Exmos. Yeah, so Exmos is a fabulous UK semiconductor company out of Bristol. It was formed by, oh, I forget his name, but one of the other guys that you will know that was involved on the board that was kind of one of the uh, was this uh, one of the technical directors was David May. David May, for those that know their computing history, was the guy that did the transputer and the programming language OCAM. OCAM, yeah. Uh, which was based on Tony Hoare's work out of Cambridge, which was the uh, communicating sequential processes, uh, which is a safe way of doing parallel and concurrent computing. So Exmos inherited some of that. Uh, the company was started by one of these students at Bristol Uni. Um, and what, what the Exmos chips were, were they were a multi-core microcontroller. It would run at like 400 megahertz or so. And we're going back here, I don't know, seven or eight years when they released this, maybe mm. more, maybe 10 actually. 
Um, so it was very advanced. So it was a very fast microcontroller, but it had multiple cores, or it was treated like multiple cores. Actually, what it did was a very quick round robin, and it just kept the state of all the registers as if they were separate processors. It was a very clever design. And it has this built-in communication between the processors, et cetera. Um, and as I, you know, it inherited from the transputer this idea of using communicating uh, sequential processes, which is a safe way of doing concurrency and parallel programming. Uh, but the very strange thing about this design is you didn't have any peripherals in it. Normally, if you have a microcontroller, you'll have a, you know, like an SPI, you are serial. You, you've yeah. got these dedicated pieces of hardware for doing, um, doing processing. Uh, and that comes from the basic von Neumann design. You know, it was never designed to do real-time stuff. So the idea of something being Turing complete was you could write a program that, that could write itself, that could, you know, produce any machine that was based on it kind of thing. Um, but what that never said was you could do it in real time. Mm. Right? It just gets slower and slower up the stack. So it was never designed as a real-time architecture. I mean, Turing did do a load of parallel work, you know, where he had these multiple-headed machines reading tape and stuff. Um, but that got less attention. Um, and the von Neumann architecture was just sequential. It was a single process. But when you come to do real-time stuff, um, you, you need some way of being able to service what's going on in the real-time. Normally, when you're interfacing with the real world, right? So I can't remember whose idea. I must look this up, actually, is someone thought of this idea of having interrupts. And that kind of got bolted onto the side of this von Neumann architecture. And that's what everybody uses to this day in every microcontroller. Mm. Uh, and it's a terrible way of having to organize things. You know, if you've got one real-time interrupt, it's quite easy. You know, a line signals that it needs attention, some hardware peripheral needs doing. Uh, your program stops doing what it's doing, runs another piece of code called an interrupt service routine, and then you go back to the program. That's fine. But what if you've got several different things interrupting very frequently? Then you've got, then you hit this terrible uh, issue whereby, well, what if I'm in the interrupt servicing this thing, and then something else interrupts that? And you, you suddenly you get tangled in these horrific state issues and latency issues. Um, so the interrupt idea is very good for very simple things, but it's very bad. And anyone that's written complex real-time uh, embedded programs will, will have hit these problems. It's very difficult uh, not only to get it running, but to actually test that it works consistently because you can never test it for all the possible combinations of when something yeah. will interrupt something else. So uh, one of the things that the XMOS chip did said, let's not have peripherals, because peripherals is one of the ways of trying to avoid that, because you get the hardware to do stuff and not interrupt you know, the, uh, the software. So what they said, well, let's forget this. We've got something that's really fast here that can run multiple processes. All the peripherals are software. Uh, but in order for that to work, because it's concurrent, even though it did support interrupts as well, what it used this IO-centric mechanism so that any process 
where, where's someone I'm, coming? I'm just, it, it, I'm just recalling IRC for the, um, the, the executive summary. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm going on. But basically, let, let's, uh, let's wrap this back up so that yeah. we can continue with the. Um... So basically, it can handle multiple IOs at once. I interrupted you in the middle of your interrupted service routine. Yeah. No, so, who's got the stack? So you can remember what the question was. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll pop that back out in a bit. So basically, you could write your software and deal with this very easily yeah. in a controlled fashion, safe fashion. You don't get all the concurrency issues, etc. And it always surprised me that no one else did it. Of course, the weakness is the only company that was doing this was Exmos. Right. Uh, so where do you buy your solution from? Well, you buy it from Exmos. Uh, what are most company policies? You know, they need multiple sources for stuff. Yeah. So it, it made it very difficult. But in the companies that I were was, was doing commercial work, this was really good. It was a joy to actually design, you know, particularly the robotic stuff, which I do a lot of commercially. Um, and we tried to get Exmos to open source as much as this possible, hoping that it could become multiple. But, mm. um, you know, we hit hit boundaries, you know. Right. They were very, very open in some ways and not so open in others, and um, that's what made it difficult. So, yes, I do miss that because of the, the elegance compared to going the interrupt route. Um, so now you can build your own processes using FPGAs. Indeed. Um, but there are limitations when you do that. When you decide to put your processor in the FPGA, it uses a lot of resources. Mm. Um, also, it can be annoying in it doesn't always run as fast as you want. However, what you can do is you can build mul you know, multiple of them. So now there's a lot of development you know, in that area. Lots of people will buy FPGAs purely to explore that. You know, <clears throat> Often they start off using the old processors, right? rebuilding those and then they look at how those work and think how can we okay. do <clears throat> a different one and obviously risk five is a very mm. very popular one we see risk five on our boards frequently yeah. people doing various different versions of that yeah it's so exciting doing that for the first time i remember that being one of one of the things when i um wrote my own peripheral and then attached it onto a RISC-V process and then wrote some firmware that would do something with that peripheral. It was like, wow, I'm designing my own CPUs. <laughs> this is amazing. And particularly yeah. software engineers, they love that, of course. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, yeah. they can build their perfect architecture, right? They can do all the things that the stuff that they have to work on doesn't Yeah, and then do. they disappear down the rabbit hole <laughs> and uh, stop writing any software and just get to completely <laughs> absorbed into the hardware. So um, maybe a good... Um, uh, final question for you is um, another one from Twitter. Um, given your long-term experience, where do you see open source FPGA tools in five years? <clears throat> well, um, I mean, there are a lot of advantages to working with open source. You know, when you find bugs, you can get them fixed, right? That The way that that works with vendors was horrific. You know, you, you wouldn't see your fix for months, sometimes years if they actually listen to you at all. You know. mm. um, so that, just like open source software in, you know, that we've seen in other industries, makes a huge difference. That I, means uh, it just, can Just interrupting forward. there, I, I read a really funny story recently about um, some, big, some bugs being so well-known and having such well-known workarounds that were then made it into <laughs> all the documentation for how to 
get results with this tool that they decided to not fix the bugs because it would mean having to redo all the documentation. <laughs> well, indeed. Or, or some other excuse for not fixing yeah, yeah, it, right? Yeah. Um, so there's some very interesting areas. What the My particular take on FPGAs and my interest on FPGAs is slightly different from a lot of people. Um, although I'd like to make chips one day, the kind of chips I want to make will require quite a hefty process because they would be like Xmos in, in some ways. Um, but I have this interest in a different way of looking at breaking down problems. So, for example, and this ties in really to how you can bring software uh, people into this world as well. Uh, it's, it's the same sort of question in that right now, if you look at most how most software works and how you tackle problems, it all boils down into this funnel of instructions. That's what it comes down to. That's what comes out the other end of a compiler is this stream of instructions. Um, so the output of our work, if you like, our productivity is confined by the limits of this instruction paradigm, which is very von Neumann in its nature. Um, and I think we're missing a lot of tricks here. And you see this in a lot of software now. You're seeing a lot of heterogeneity you know, where you're seeing this mixture of things like your regular von Neumann type architectures, you know, Intel's and your ARM type processes, GPUs and FPGAs, uh, and then trying to combine those in many different ways. Um, so you're seeing that very much at the high end in the data centers in order to improve throughput, reduce power, et cetera, et cetera. But we have the same problems in, in the embedded space as well. And we're seeing some of that heterogeneity drifting into uh, the embedded space. And I've done a number of talks on this. It's one of my favorite subjects. But I think where I think we will be able to get to is somewhere in between programming logic, HDL, and high-level synthesis. There's a golden ground in between those two that will enable us to actually do our programming if you're a software engineer without having to jump through this massive impedance mismatch. It will be much more understanding for you. But actually what's going on underneath is it's not producing a load of cores, you know, like the kind of high-level synthesis does, but it's actually breaking that down into very small logical blocks. But what that can mean is you don't always need a core to do something that you've effectively defined algorithmically it may be much simpler it may be a very simple state machine or a simple Maybe piece a of like IO the, logic the the pio cores on the new raspberry pi chip um well the pios what that does is that that solves the von neumann issue because it, it puts a kind of hardware programming in a peripheral itself so that it doesn't have to interrupt the main core. So that's like XMOS. Only the problem with PIO is you have to program it in a in assembly that is actually quite tricky when you get down to it because the PIO instructions are um, even from even though there's only what 16 instructions I think it is, 
they're actually quite complicated. You can think of them as wide instructions because they do some crazy stuff like you can do two things at once in the instruction. So you can change a clock line and you can change a normal line because you'd want to do that in your I.O. just like an FPGA. However, the language you're using to do that is assembly. Now, for Raspberry Pi, that won't matter because that will end up in libraries. People won't see that. They will get the benefit of that without seeing that. Um, whereas if you look at the way that it was done in XMOS, they decided to extract the whole thing into a you know, CSP type. Um, CSP? Yeah, I mentioned it before. It's uh, Communicating Serial Processors. Okay. It's based on Tony Hall's parallel processing or concurrent mathematics. It's a proven way of breaking down the problem. It's what Occam was based on, for example. Um, Google's language, uh, Go, um, Rob Pike has throughout he, the various different languages he's written, um, he, he quite often puts the CSP bent into them because he likes CSP, for example. Um, so Google's channels and things are CSP constructs. Uh, and I think what we will see is CSP constructs at the heart of solving this problem because it's a mathematical way of breaking down problems that's very safe and easy for people to program with. And you can make it just look like software engineering rather than hardware engineering, which is the key to bringing the other people across. And I think we're very, very close to that. I've been playing around with some things recently, and it looks to me that there's a way forward. There are gaps and holes in it, that I'm trying to find a way of patching somehow to bring the various different pieces together. But I think, if that works out, and that's I'm seeing that this year, where I expected to see that next year, again in open source projects, um, and if that works out, I think we'll start seeing that happening this year, and I think people will see that and think, hold on, this is much more like software engineering, and you don't have the impedance mismatch with people coming across, and you can separate out the separate out the hardware bits enough so that that can be a library or a protocol or uh you know that won't require the you know the the um hardware knowledge you know so you'd be relying on writing software and you could use a language that's commonly available to do that in um right i i, I quite like i'm mmigen and python but it drives me mad. It's so verbose. You're just typing all the time in Python. You, you've got these really long, you know, I'm someone that's grown up writing C, you know, and I like short names for variables. And But Python always strikes me as, well, I've got to do so much typing just to get one line. You know, you end up with these huge, great, big, very textual um, descriptions. And I find it very verbose for me as, a, as a, an embedded engineer to use and i'd like to use a more concise language something that's smaller something that's more like c so um i think we'll see that and i think we'll see this bridge closed between the hardware and the software part such that we can write software that basically is synthesized onto hardware and it will use a combination you know there'll be a compilation part and a synthesis part underneath that means the bits that run best on the von Neumann stuff runs on von Neumann, and then the bits that run in raw logic run on the FPGA. 
And I think then we will find, you know, this kind of more promised land, if you like, that makes it easy to move forward. Right. Um, and I think all of that will be open source. And I think when it happens, it, the industry will change because I think people will suddenly think, well, hold on a minute. If this is the way that people are now using this stuff, let's design FPGAs that are good at doing that rather than the other way around where we're kind of hijacking something that is really used more in chip design than is used for generic programming. So I think what you'll see is possibly the emergence of hardware vendors or maybe open silicon, right? People designing FPGA. Yeah, there's at least two different FPGA projects on the yeah. Google. I mean, wouldn't it be good to do like yeah. a really good FPGA that was designed for that? rather than designed for the same old, same old type FPGA mm. application. So I think once the software gets to a certain point, that happens. I mean, we saw it with Linux and things, you know, where vendors of silicon started saying, well, maybe we need to change our stuff so it works with this stuff. And that the software ended up driving the hardware. Mm. So I think at that point, we all know, you know, just how successful the open source uh, software will be because it will actually, you know, the the industry itself will probably turn and, you know, follow the software rather than the other way around, you know, and Great. software really will eat the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for your um, ideas and uh, conversation about this. Um, if people want to get in touch to find out anything more about your projects or the uh, MyStorm community, where should they go? Uh, well, you've got the MyStorm forum which is mystorm.uk or the forum is forum.mystorm.uk you can find me i'm doing a street stream regularly on twitch forward slash folknology twitch tv forward slash folknology uh i i tend to stream on a wednesday eight o'clock uh greenwich mean time in the uk i also record those and put them up on my youtube channel but you can find all of that probably down at uh the MyStorm forums are probably the best place to we'll go. We'll link them in in the video as well. Yeah. Okay. And is there anything else that you want to tell us about, just as a final thing? Uh, not off the top of my head. I mean, we just need to get down to pushing this thing forward. I mean, I, we do have some new hardware stuff coming, you know, in the MyStorm uh, community. We expect to have an ECP5-based product Ooh, very nice. soon. Um I think one of the Twitter questions was, was it going to be like modular, like the uh, Black Ice MX? But the answer is mm. yes, it will be modular, uh, although it will have a slightly different connector set out on it. Um, and we've got a couple of other projects in, 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 the, in the pipe as well, some of which is waiting on new FPGA hardware support that we hope is going to come down over the next year or so. Uh, and maybe we do a low power thing that's aimed at battery type operation and stuff as well. So we've got lots of plans, just not enough time to get them out. Uh, it's the same old problem. <laughs> <laughs> but watch this Great, space. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Al, for your time, and um, we'll see you around. All right, brilliant. Bye-bye. Thank you, Matt.